the people I love the most, the people that I've had the most success working with were the people, no matter how successful they were, no matter how experienced they were, they were always willing to learn something new. They were always open-minded to, if anyone could walk in the door and teach them something that they didn't currently know, that they were totally open-minded to it. And those are the people that really have been the most successful in the world. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. What's up, folks? Welcome to today's show. As many of you regular listeners know right now, we're not necessarily always talking to folks that work at manufacturers. Sometimes we're talking about solutions that can have a massive impact on manufacturers and their business performance. And that's exactly what we're focused on today here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. Specifically, we're going to be talking about identifying significant cost savings that can ultimately save jobs, and protect employee benefits, a topic that, quite frankly, could not be coming at a better time. Our conversation today is with Josh Fox, the CEO of Bottom Line Concepts, a company that specializes in looking at an organization's indirect costs, auditing for refunds, and looking ahead for big savings. So, what are the three things you can expect from today's show? Well, first, we're going to hear Josh's story and how a mix of his personal experiences and his financial background led him to starting Bottom Line Concepts. Second, we're going to learn what it's like working with Bottom Line. This is where the bulk of today's conversation takes place. Josh walks us through their performance-based business model that completely eliminates risks for their partners and takes us through the steps that they use to engage with them. We have some stories and great examples from both inside and outside of the manufacturing industry that go along with this, as well as ways for both companies, big and small, to work with bottom line. Finally, as our conversation draws to a close, we get to know Josh a little bit more as he shares why he's been driven to keep at this business for over a decade, and we'll also pick up some important lessons around leading and learning towards the end as well. I should mention that this was actually the last in-person interview we did before Shelter-in-Place took effect, like literally right before that. Josh and I met up at his home in Beverly Hills for this conversation in March 2020. This is coming out in April 2020. And to add a little levity, Josh's pet dogs made an appearance uh, in the conversation as well. Before we get rolling today, as always, if you are enjoying the show, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at iTunes. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. That'll take you straight to Apple Podcasts. When you're there, scroll down and hit that five-star button. That's the easy part. Then there's a little spot where you can say, write a review. Now, this review doesn't need to be long. It can be super short, as short as one sentence, but any feedback helps, and your engagement definitely helps put us on the podcast map. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And with that, since, you know, we can't really travel literally right now, let's head on down to Los Angeles, California for our conversation with Josh Fox. Well, this is the most 
exotic spot I've done an episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour for sure. Typically, we're in a manufacturing facility, but up here in, this is officially Beverly Hills, right? This is. This is uh, the Truesdale area of Beverly Hills, yeah. Mm-hmm. A little bit of a cloudy day, but you can definitely still uh, still feel the vibe up here. So today, we are hanging out with the founder and CEO of a company that has helped thousands of other organizations identify cost savings of over $500 million. In creating bottom line concepts, this individual and his team have partnered with a range of companies, anything from international hotel chains to global manufacturers to more than a few professional sports franchises. And they've worked with them to assess and reduce the cost of their top line items to positively impact business profits. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Fox, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Excited to be here. Excited to have you on the show. And for those of you listening out there, if you want to connect with Bottom Line Concepts, you can do that at bottomlinesavings.com or you can find them on LinkedIn at Bottom Line Concepts. So, Josh, in the spirit of being on Manufacturing Happy Hour, let's kick things off in a, uh, we'll say, a drinking-oriented way. So, let's say you're hanging out at Avra here at Beverly Hills, and you're drinking a bourbon, and someone comes up to you, and they're like, Josh, Josh, what do you do? What does is, what is Bottom Line Concepts do? What do you tell them in, like, 30 seconds? You know, it's funny. People always talk about that kind of 30-second commercial. Like, if you're mm-hmm. in an elevator or you're at a bar and someone comes up to you and says, what do you do? You know, you want to be well-prepared. So um, what I simply say is we help companies either look back in time to find refunds or mm-hmm. look forward to help them save money and we share in the savings. We truly become partners with our clients where they get a percentage of the savings, and so do we. Mm-hmm. Well, I love the way you describe it as a partnership. We're going to get into specifically what Bottom Line Concepts does here in a second. Um, but in the meantime, we want to get to know you a little bit first. Most people probably don't grow up saying, hey, I'm going to help giant corporations save a bunch of money. But you went to business school at University of Michigan. I'm curious, you know, what got you on the path? Well, maybe what, what happened in your formative years, you feel, that drew you into this business or maybe just entrepreneurship in general? No, it definitely started at Michigan. You know, it's such mm-hmm. a great university. And I think most people who went there have such a admiration and love for the alumni and for the school itself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I studied economics there, so I knew early on that I wanted to be doing something in finance. And I'm definitely a pedigree Wall Street family. Like my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, you know, all Mm -hmm. worked on Wall Street. So I think Mm -hmm. I was just like born to do something with Wall Street and money and finance. Sure. Yeah, you're a Long Island guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe you can hear my uh, Long Island accent, but... uh, I'm from the North Shore, not the South Shore, so it's a little more subdued. Gotcha. And, you know, I graduated college and I became a private wealth manager. So I was doing that for a decade, helping people invest their money. And obviously, it's a very, very weird week to be working on Wall Street, but I did that for about a decade. Um, Right. Whether it was going to their uh, houses or going to their offices, meeting with them and their spouses, you know, helping them invest their money for their future. So mm-hmm. right from the day I graduated college, you know, I was always involved in, in, again, Wall Street finance money. And it was great. I mean, I really had a wonderful experience for a decade, you know, working on Wall Street. But I wanted to start something myself. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I, I didn't want to work for mm-hmm. someone my whole career. And what really gave me this idea was at the time I put my entire life savings into buying a fairly large apartment in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I was like 26, 27 years old, and I was one of the third person to ever move into the building. 
It was the rats were running around the building still. The hallways were made of concrete. There was no lobby. I mean, really, like a very, real, yeah, fresh new development. Yeah, is what I'm hearing. exactly. And I got a really unique opportunity to run for being on the condo board. Oh, and it was okay. a big building. I mean, we're talking 220 apartments. Yeah. You know, not a small place. And I, and I won. I became president of the building at a young age. Mm. And it was a volunteer job. I wasn't, you know, being paid to do that. But I thought it was a great thing to do to protect my investment is to help run the building. Mm -hmm. And for, I think I was president for about seven years, eight years, something like that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what happens is when you get these uh, developers that hand over the building to the condo board, they'll tell you that the common charges will be a dollar a month and they end up being $3 a month. Okay. Okay. And from this moment I took over as president for eight years, let's call it, we never had a common charge increase in the history of while I was running this place. And that's like unheard of. Yeah. You know, to be able to run this building like a lean machine, you know, looking at all the different expenses. And yeah. What was your secret then to that? If that's not the norm, what, what do you think you were doing that kept it under control? I just had a lot of relationships at that point. I had okay. relationships with banks. Mm -hmm. So I was able to get our money, probably a higher interest rate than the other buildings were getting. Gotcha. Um, I was able to like refinance some of the loans. So we were paying low interest rates when it came to the debt that was on the building. Mm -hmm. You know, I was really good at negotiating contracts because I was really good at math and numbers. So any combination of all that really, really helped. And I also became very close with the staff. Listen, anything, I don't care what kind of operations you're running, if you don't have a good team, you're finished. Yeah. But I had a great relationship with the porters and the doormans and the supers and the assistant supers. And we all really just loved each other. And we worked collaboratively to really want to make this building the best it could be. Gotcha. So if I'm hearing things right, you were taking your background, kind of your family heritage also, your degree, all those experiences, combining it with this experience just from living in your everyday life as being the president of your apartment complex in that regard, it sounds like you kind of brought those together in a way that brought about bottom line concepts. Can you tell us what took maybe bottom line concepts, what the inspiration was that took it from business to landing your first client? Well, just really, really quick. Sorry to just digress back for one second. For sure. It really was in 2008 and people forget like the stock market was at 6,000, somewhere mm -hmm. in that range in 2008. Mm -hmm. And every time I would turn on the TV or I'd open up the newspaper, you know, every company, every major corporation, doesn't matter how big or small they were, they were just firing their employees. That was the way to save money. Mm -hmm. And I think we're entering into that time again, unfortunately, in our economy in probably 2020, 2021. But mm -hmm. now we're talking 2008, right? And so mm -hmm. it just seemed like a perfect time to start a company, other, saving other companies money. Yeah. And it just came to me. I said, listen, I'm running this big building, doing a great job. If I can do this for a big building, I can do this for people's businesses. And the name was just so appropriate, bottom line, right? Yeah. It's like how many times do people who run corporations or nonprofits sit in these fancy boardrooms and say, what's the bottom line? How do mm -hmm. we improve the bottom line? Tell us about the bottom line. I mean, it's become such a ingrained couple of words in our, in our English language. And I was able to trademark the name back then. So away I went. Wow, how is that not taken? <laughs> it's, it wasn't taken in the financial world. You okay. know what I mean? Like uh, there was like you. a magazine called Bottom Line. Yeah. There was uh, a club called the Bottom Line, but there wasn't anything like in terms of like financial consulting. Mm -hmm. And 2009 came up with the idea, launched the company, trademarked the name, and 
it was really, really hard. You know, I, I love uh, Shark Tank's really just a show that I've watched religiously like mm-hmm. a lot of people. And I, I remember hearing kind of the difference between being an entrepreneur and a wantrepreneur. Mm-hmm. You know the difference? Entrepreneurs taking action, entrepreneurs still sitting back wishing they were doing it. But I'd be interested to hear not what really the official definition. Um, is. I mean, a entrepreneur is someone who has a job, yeah, right, and is getting a salary and is in cushiony situation, mm-hmm. and they're just scared to kind of take that jump. Okay, and that's what it was for me. You know, I had worked at this company for over a decade, and I had a great job and a great group of clients. And I was like slowly, you know, starting bottom line. It was like I'd work in the evening a little bit. I'd work on the weekends. Yeah. I, I would, you know, start early in the morning. And I really was a entrepreneur for a couple of years because I was like terrified to give up the career that I had built. Mm-hmm. Because how many people can make no money for like a year or two or three? Right. It's difficult. And it wasn't like I went out and raised any money. You mm-hmm. know, I really self-funded the company. I took the savings that I had created over a 10-year career and said... I'm going to start this company and I know I'm not going to make any money for like two or three years. And that's a pretty scary place to be, but not many people have that personality. So the difference between being a entrepreneur, not being able to take that full jump and mm-hmm. being an entrepreneur and being willing to take the full risk. What do you think was the key thing that helped you overcome that fear of going from entrepreneur to entrepreneur? It's always that one moment, you know, I had done a really big deal at my old firm. Okay. I had made a fairly large commission on an account that I had brought in. Mm-hmm. And it just gave me that final kind of like big cushion that I needed in the bank to really feel secure knowing that I might not make money for a couple of years. Gotcha. So some financial cushion there. Any other parts of the story that you want to share before we dive into what bottom line concepts looks like for our manufacturing industry audience out there that's listening well when you're starting a business and i don't care what business you're running Mm -hmm. it's interesting you know like if you're opening a company that manufactures shoes for example like are you going to start a company that's going to charge fifty dollars for a pair of shoes or are you going to start a company that's going to charge a thousand dollars for a pair of shoes you know it's very different ends of the spectrum and there are Mm -hmm. people that have started each type of company And when I started Bottom Line, I didn't want to work with small companies. I felt like I really wanted to go big right away. Mm -hmm. And the first three clients that I brought on board were doing over a billion dollars in revenue, each of those first three clients at that point. We're talking 2009. And a lot of people are like, why didn't you start with the local deli or the local grocery store or the Mm -hmm. local, you know, know, restaurant? And I I just, I really wanted to go big. And even if it took me longer, Mm because the sales cycle is going to be longer for a bigger company, I just knew right away that I wanted to work with the greatest brands, the biggest logos, the most prestigious companies in the world. And that's really what got me excited to do this. Okay. So there's the inspiration to to getting to bottom line concepts. You know, I'm I'm curious, let's go into the, maybe a little more of the details around what you do. Because if I look at your company, the areas that you look at cost savings and also look at the past, look at the future, you're dealing with a lot of the non-sexy expenses that these companies deal with, freight and shipping, telecom, payroll, all of those areas. Take me through the process of what it's like working with bottom line concepts. Well, we decided from the beginning that we were only going to look at the indirect expenses of a business, mm-hmm. right? We weren't going to look at the cost of cotton. We weren't going to look at the cost of steel. Mm-hmm. We weren't going to look at the direct cost in terms of what it took to put into a, a product to manufacture it. Mm-hmm. We decided that in order for this to really work, because our business model was very different than traditional consulting. Traditional consulting that's been around for hundreds of years was always, I'll charge you by the hour or I'll charge you by the project. And the corporation has no guarantee of results. 
Mm-hmm. So I said, what if I put a business model together? Now, I wasn't the first one ever to do this, but I think I was you know, fairly unique in putting the whole collaboration together, which was we're only going to charge you if and when we save you money. Yeah, a performance-based model. Yeah, and, and the risk is really on bottom line. Like the corporation has no risk mm-hmm. other than putting some documents together for us. Sure. So you get engaged. It's a no-risk formula for the client that you're working with. And then, you know, after you're in there, you get those documents, you get a baseline. What happens after you have an idea of where some of those savings are? Well, that's the key to the whole business is the benchmark. Okay. Right? So we have to get invoices from customers for whatever Mm -hmm. of the cost that they like us to look at. It could be electricity or gas or water or telephone or internet or payroll or credit card fees. There's about 15 different areas that we look at. Okay. And we go to them and say, it's really simple. Today, for this product or this service, you're paying $1. Mm -hmm. And we literally have a benchmark document. It's one piece of paper and the client signs off on it and we sign off on it and we say, yes, I agree. This is what I'm paying today. So there's no ambiguity, there's no questions. And that's why a lot of the other expenses, it was hard to do that because if I was looking at the cost of you know, beef, I mean, it could change every day. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to create a, yeah. bench, a baseline. Sure. But if I'm looking at their payroll costs and they're paying $22.37 every two weeks to run the payroll, it's a very clear benchmark. Yeah. Yeah, you're looking at everything. I'm just thinking about this from a manufacturing standpoint. You're not looking at the cost of goods sold and things like that. That It's really the things that are non-core to what that company does or the general infrastructure. Yeah, but items. you need these things to make the product, 100%. Right? Yeah. 100%. That's a perfect explanation of, of what the process looks like. Can you give us a story that illustrates that? And, and you know, since we have a manufacturing audience, I'd love if you could start with a non-manufacturing example, because you've done things with the Milwaukee Bucks, countless giant hotel chains, finance, retail, I mean, you name it. Like, there are a lot of cool examples in there. Is there a story that sticks out that helps you kind of illustrate what that process looks like with a company? Sure. You know, I think almost every company today relies upon logistics, right? They need Mm -hmm. to to transport a product from one place to another, whether it's in a small parcel envelope or whether it's in a light truck load or a heavy truck load, you know, you need to move the product to the end and to the, you know, end customer. And one of the things that was cool was, you know, you would think like if you're using like a FedEx or a UPS or a DHL or something like that, a lot of companies are buying a bundled product. Mm-hmm. So they'll pay $100 to ship the product from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And if there's any value to the product, like if there's you're shipping a watch or a gun or a bottle of liquor or something that has real value to it, medical mm-hmm. devices, you're going to need to insure the product. Mm-hmm. And we had met so many companies early on where they really were making a mistake that they were buying a bundled shipping product from the shipping companies. Mm-hmm. So maybe of the $100, $60 was going to actually do the shipment and $40 was going to actually pay to ensure the product that it was going to get there safely. Okay. And it, it sounds so simple now, but we were educating companies that if you were to just simply pay the shipping company to do what they do, which is to ship and get a separate insurance policy to make sure that the product was being shipped there. Mm. I mean, we're talking 40% savings. Like the product would would go from a bundled price of $100 to a bundled price of like $60. Great example. And, you know, if you're spending $20 million a year on shipping, I mean, at 40%, you're talking an insane amount of money. Yeah, I, I imagine the magnitude of the savings you're able to bring a company depends on the size 
in sure. that regard. When you're talking about savings in the millions of dollars, I'm curious when a company is able to recognize those savings at that point after they're down the line with you, what do you see them typically do with that savings at that point? That's a big topic too. It's like exactly like what is the end result? And I think that's really what motivates me every day. Mm-hmm. You think about how many jobs have been saved yeah. by the money that we've brought to companies. Mm-hmm. And it's such a ripple effect. You know what I mean? It's not just like saving the job. You know, you think about like a family where the breadwinner is supporting elderly parents mm-hmm. and the breadwinner is supporting, you know, young children. The generations that that money uh, is coming in as a career really goes to support. So it's not even just like that many hundreds of thousands of jobs that I know we've saved, mm-hmm. but it's like how many family members would have been affected if negatively by these people losing their jobs because we talked a little bit earlier, like the number one way that every company in the world looks to save money is they just cut headcount. That has been the easiest, simplest, fastest way for companies to save money. And they don't think about the emotions. They don't think about the families. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even at some point, like, you know, you're going to have to rehire down the road as long as the corporation exists. Mm -hmm. So you think about the hard costs and the soft cost of rehiring employees. I mean, mm-hmm. companies pay recruiting fees. Right. You know, the amount of time you have to retrain people mm-hmm. and the HR people that you have to pay to find these people. I mean, there's so many hard and soft costs right. of rehiring. For sure. It's at least a five-figure investment on the low end yeah. for as a hiring cost goes. <laughs> so it's just like you think about the positive ripple effects that we've had mm-hmm. over the last 11 years, because it's been 11 years now in saving these jobs, saving these families, saving the cost of rehiring, mm-hmm. retraining. Well, one one thing that's on my mind right now before we wrap up this first part of the interview is this is a really interesting time to be having this conversation because there I mean we're in times of uncertainty, stock market's taking a hit. You could say we're going into a recession right now. How do people keep their cool and what are the right things to do when it comes to looking at these type of savings in a time like this? Well, when you think about everything in life, like we mm-hmm. really outsource so much in our life in today's world, right? Mm-hmm. Like I could go cut my own lawn, but I just don't. I hire a gardener. Mm-hmm. You know, I could do my own taxes, but I don't. I hire an accountant. Mm-hmm. And I think the problem that we face in going to these massive corporations is that these C-level executives are so successful. They've been through so much that they have trouble admitting that they want help, that they need help, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like if you're the CEO, CFO, general counsel, head of HR, head of operations, any of these types of people at these major corporations, it's tough for them to kind of let their guard down, let their ego go a little bit and say, you know what? I get help in so many other parts of my life. Why can't I get help in running my business and making it more efficient? Mm-hmm. And I think this time will really break those barriers down, mm-hmm. will minimize people's egos and give them a chance to work with organizations like ours to really help them. Great way to describe it. I mean, I look at any scenario like this. It's real. It's the time to get creative. It's the time to get smart and focus on the core priorities. And cost savings in a time like this are always going to be near that top of that list. The people I love the most, the people that I've had the most success working with were the people, no matter how successful they were, no matter how experienced they were, they were always willing to learn something new. They were always open-minded to, if anyone could walk in the door and teach them something that they didn't currently know, Mm -hmm. that they were totally open-minded to it. And those are the people that really have been the most successful in the world, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, I mean, I think you summarized it 
before that pretty pretty darn well with that. It's about dropping the ego at the end of the day, recognizing you don't have the answer to everything, and there are people that are specialized in these areas. And I'm excited to talk about what this looks like more specifically for the manufacturing sector right after this break. This episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the largest library of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment in the world. And because you are a listener of this show, you get access to a free audiobook at the start of your subscription. Now, I know I'm not traveling as much these days, so I'm not listening to Audible in the car or on a plane like I normally am, but I am certainly listening to it around the house, in the kitchen, on my runs. In fact, I try to do just as much fiction as I try to do business books right now. I'm in the middle of Million Dollar Consulting by Alan Weiss. At the same time, I'm listening to A Little Red Rising, which is actually a really good science fiction book if you want to check that out as well. It's all about balance. Long story short, I love Audible. It keeps me sharp and it keeps me entertained and it can do the same for you. If you sign up for your free trial at audibletrial.com slash happyhourpod. Thanks again to Audible for sponsoring today's show. And now back to our conversation. We are back for round two and we have two dogs that are part of the interview now too. What are their names? These guys just rolled in. Uh, that's Tom Brady from the University of Michigan mm-hmm. that I went to school with. Mm-hmm. And this is Hunter. He's uh, my favorite color green and Hunter Fox and Brady Fox. All right, that's what you get. To, that's what you get when you do an interview on site at uh, rather than at a factory. So, all right. Well, to kick off round two, this this part of the interview is going to be a bit more manufacturing focused. Um, so, my first question is: You shared a story towards the end of the first part of the interview, but can you give us an example within the manufacturing industry in terms of what your work looks like and how you've helped companies save money and impact their profits? Sure. So, when you think about pretty much every warehouse, every manufacturing plant in our country, one of their largest expenses on the indirect side is their utility bills, mm-hmm. right? They have to keep those lights on. They have to keep those conveyor belts running, you know, sometimes 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So the electricity bill is massive. Okay. And the gas bill can be massive. Mm-hmm. In certain places, they have oil bills, which can be very large also. Mm-hmm. So because we do work with a lot of manufacturing companies early on in the company, we figured out some really creative ways to save companies on their utility bills. Okay. And what a lot of people don't realize, or some people realize, but most don't realize, is that in most of our country, in many of the states that we live in, there's a monopoly. They call them regulated states, mm-hmm. where there's no other choice for a utility company. Mm-hmm. Like in California, for example, in Florida, for example, you know, big states. It's a regulated, monopolized state when it comes to buying utilities. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like traditional RFPs that you can run to find cheaper pricing or call competitive vendors to find cheaper pricing. So we built a really robust utility department where we figured out creative ways to help companies save money in these states where you can't call alternative suppliers. And we're talking 20% savings, 30% savings. I mean, not small amounts. And if you're paying $50 million a year, which many manufacturing companies are, Mm -hmm. you're talking about 
a lot of jobs saved, a lot of money saved. Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that I found interesting about what you said, if I heard you right, you have different departments with your team that focus specifically on utilities, on the different type of cost savings. Is that sure. correct? Yep. So I love that specialization. I guess an- another question I have is you mentioned utilities. Is that the biggest savings for manufacturers or are there other areas that a lot of manufacturers are missing, for example, where there's a lot of extra cost? Another great area. Um, a lot of people have heard about it. A lot of people haven't heard about it. Um, the work opportunity tax credit. Mm. So it's a tax credit out there which really works well in the manufacturing space because it's a credit for hiring certain types of employees. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest group that we've seen is the veterans. So okay. if you're a manufacturer and you're hiring veterans, mm-hmm. you can get up to a $10,000 tax credit for hiring that type of person. Mm-hmm. But you have a very short window of time after the person's hired to mm-hmm. fill out the proper paperwork, to ask the proper questions, to submit it to the government in order yeah. to get your tax deduction. So you really have to have a very robust program and you have to be on yeah. top of this stuff. Oh, yeah. And I, I love that you brought up that example because, I mean, for our manufacturing audience out there, there are a lot of companies that are hiring a lot of veterans right now because yeah. if you think about the skill set for manufacturing, having a military background is perfect for it. You're used to working in high-pressure situations. There's that technical acumen that's needed, so that's a huge one to mention. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and now I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. You know, you've talked about how you have different specialized groups within your team to focus on utilities or the veterans, uh, the veterans programs. I'm just curious, what's to stop a company from being like, I could just do this on my own? What's what's your answer to that? Well, the answer is simple. They've already done it on their own. Mm-hmm. Like the day before they met me, they should have done the best job they can possibly do. Sure. Yeah. And I love the analogy of a lemon, right? Like yeah. you've taken a lemon, it's got a lot of juice in it. Mm-hmm. And before you met me, the day before I came and sat in your office or I'm on the phone call on a conference call with you, you've mm-hmm. squeezed that lemon as hard as you can possibly squeeze it. Mm-hmm. And so you don't feel, you feel like you did a great job yesterday. Right. So mm-hmm. what I'm saying is whatever you've done up until yesterday, give me today as a benchmark. And if I can get more juice out of that same lemon, mm-hmm. I just want to get paid for the juice that I got out of it. Sure. And, and I love the uh, pay for performance model that we talked about earlier in that process. You know, another thing I'm thinking of, because the manufacturing industry, and you've talked about the importance of relationships, it's a very, main, uh, a very relationship based business in a lot of ways. A lot of these places have probably been working with their vendors for these different services for years. Now, we talked about the monopoly example, but the in the case where there are multiple options on the table, I'm curious, is this an area where companies need to be worried? It's like, oh, shoot, I've got a great relationship with this company. I don't want them to go away. How do you work around that when you're weighing alternatives? You know the concept of the zero-sum game? Mm-hmm. You know, that typically in life, one party has to win in order for another party to lose and vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. Like in the Super Bowl and football, one party wins and one party loses. They can't, yep. play, can't both win. So what I love in the model that we've built is that if we're going into a company like that's using FedEx, mm-hmm. we're not switching them to UPS, Mm-hmm. And if they're using UPS, we're not switching them to FedEx. If they're using Staples, we're not switching them to Office Depot. And if they're using Office Depot, we're not switching them to Staples. Mm-hmm. So our business model, because we truly are vendor agnostic, is whatever relationship you chose, whatever vendor you have in place the day you met us, mm-hmm. we don't change your vendors. Right. So it really is a wonderful business model where there is no zero-sum game, meaning that one vendor doesn't lose in order for another vendor to win. It's a win, 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 meaning the vendor stays in place, they keep the business, the customer saves 10 to 40%, and bottom line gets a portion of the savings. Love that. 
let's let's talk about the customer for a second also because you talked about how earlier you went straight for the really large companies rather than more the mom and pop companies. Let's say someone's listening to this episode and they're like, all right, I'm loving everything I'm hearing about bottom line concepts. What's kind of your ideal customer size? What's your ideal client look like? I mean, we really don't work with companies at this point that do less than $100 million in revenue. That's kind of our, really our starting point. Okay. And we really don't work with companies that have less than 500 employees. Mm. But in the last couple of years, I would say our average customer has, you know, between one and two billion in revenue mm-hmm. and, you know, has between probably one and 2,000 employees. It's okay. kind of like our, our average in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I think it's like any business. We've continued to upgrade um, the complexity and the size of the customer that we work with. And, you know, I think we were talking earlier. I mean, we now have 60 of the Fortune 500. Mm-hmm. And for those 60 companies to be humble enough and to not have an ego enough to say, listen, I'm one of the top 500 companies in America, but I'm humble enough. My ego is small enough where I'm willing to work with outside companies. I think something that's interesting about what you're saying with the company size is I would say the people that listen to this show, there's a portion of them that work for those large over $100 million companies. But I would say everyone listening to this show, if they work for a smaller company, they're probably providing some service to those larger companies. Good point. So what, what I'm curious about now is I, I know it's performance-based payment from the companies to you, but you also have some sort of referral program. Is this an okay time to bring that up? Because I'm sure if the smaller companies that are listening to this are like, oh, well, I don't fit that model, there might be something that they can be keeping their eye out for as well. Sure. I mean, you know, we really have very rarely cold called onto these businesses. We've really have, you know, very rarely ever, you know, bought lists or, you know, made cold emails. Mm -hmm. Um, Our business model since day one was to work with referral partners. And we have this great referral partner program. We have about 350 men and women across the country Mm -hmm. where they have the relationships with these companies because everything in life is about relationships. Like, how do I get a dinner reservation if the restaurant is booked without a relationship, right? Mm -hmm. How do I get uh, a reservation at a hotel if the hotel's booked? You know, it's always about relationships. So we wanted to fast forward the sales cycle and said, listen, if this man or this woman had a relationship with the CEO or CFO of a company, Mm -hmm. we have a referral program where we pay a portion of our fee to the referral partner for bringing us into the corporation. Mm -hmm. Now, to take it even one step further, what we have is corporate partnerships. Okay. So, for example, we have accounting firms that have thousands of customers that they would traditionally do like tax and audit work for them. Mm-hmm. And they bring us into their clients to do the cost saving work. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it holistically, let's say you're an accounting firm, you have a corporation paying you a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in fees to do the tax work. Mm-hmm. And we're able to go in there and save them a million dollars. We just paid the accounting firm's fees for the next five years. Yeah. So essentially, like, they look like heroes by bringing us in right. because their fee becomes free for years to come. That's amazing. Wow. Do you have individual partners as well as well as corporate partners? Is it mainly the corporate partnership? Or is no, it it's both? totally both. Totally yeah, We both. have individuals okay. called referral partners, and we have corporate partners called corporate partners. Got it. Okay, I'm just trying to do my double checks to make sure that everyone listening knows where they fit into this puzzle. Yeah, so right if now. you're a company, a small company, and you're selling into corporations, like your product or service is selling into large corporations, you can totally become a corporate partner to ours by bringing us into these same companies. Beyond the referral program, as, as we start getting to the final parts of the interview, I'm curious, are there, we've talked a lot about ego during this conversation so far, being able to drop the ego. Beyond that, are there mistakes that you see companies making, particularly in the manufacturing sector, when it comes to savings that can get them 
on the path to reducing those costs. So here's a point that everyone's going to say, oh, yeah, of course, I agree. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like the days that it used to be where corporations would have their C-level executives stay there for 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd stay with the company, you'd get your pension plan, you'd retire, and everything was great. Yeah. Today, the average C-level executive probably stays, I don't know, five to seven years, where it used to yeah. be 20 to 25 yeah. years. Manufacturing might be more the 10-year mark, a little probably on the higher side of that. But yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. People aren't sticking around forever like they used to. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I sent an email and I got a bounce mm-hmm. back and said, Jane is no longer with the company. Billy is no longer with the company. And I'm like, I just mm-hmm. talked to that person last week. Like, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. So because people are changing so often, you know, people have great intentions. Yeah. I'm going to get around to changing my health insurance plan, I swear, mm-hmm. you know, and then they're gone from the company. Yeah. I'm going to do this great tax audit. and I'm going to find all this money that, you know, was sitting out there. And then mm-hmm. they're gone from the company. So mm-hmm. it's really been interesting to have the evolution of people leaving corporations so fluidly and so often where even if they had great intentions, they weren't completed. Yeah. And actually, you brought up another question that just stumped into my mind. You're pr- this sounds like when you're meeting with these companies, this is a CEO, CFO type of conversation. Who are the other people that you're engaging with if people are trying to think, hey, this is right for my company. I need to go talk to X tomorrow to get this moving. Well, it's funny. You remember the old days when you used to have a suggestion box? Yeah. You know, like you would literally yeah. be able, if you were the you know, janitor or if you were you know, working in the lunchroom or whatever you did at a corporation, you used to be able to drop a suggestion that would get to the CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. And I think today that's just even harder. You know, like mm-hmm. a lot of people don't feel comfortable emailing the CEO of the company and saying, I would recommend that we go through this type of process. But mm-hmm. You know, I think if these C-level executives would be open, that's why Undercover Boss has become such a great show because the boss gets to see it from the other people's standpoint and point of view, and it's very Mm -hmm. valuable to that C-level executive. So it could be anyone running IT, like a CIO or a CTO. Mm -hmm. It could be someone running legal, like a general counsel or an assistant Mm -hmm. general counsel. It could be anyone running HR, like head of payroll or head of employee benefits. Mm -hmm. It could be head of tax. I mean, the taxes that companies pay is so convoluted and complicated these days. Yeah, you're right. All of these areas where you help with savings, whether that's tax, whether that's payroll, you know, that fits right into the HR team, the tax team. Usually there's a go-to spot within companies of that size. And we've seen it go both ways, right? We could start with just working with their IT expenses Mm -hmm. and eventually get brought into other departments. Sure. And sometimes we can go right into the CEO's office and they will say, we're going to hire you for 10 projects. That's a good point. So it's not necessarily bite it all off at once. You can kind of test the waters with like IT, for example, and then go from there. Oh, I mean, again, analogies are my thing. I mean, we have a pie of pizza. Mm-hmm. And in our business, you can buy a slice, you can buy mm-hmm. a medium pie, you can buy a large pie, meaning the slices are the categories that we offer analysis mm-hmm. in. Awesome. Well, we're starting to wrap up. I guess I have kind of a personal question for you. You know, you've been doing this for like over 10 years now. What's the most fulfilling thing about what you do that keeps you going rather than doing something else at this point in your career? You know, everyone kind of thinks about the term TGI Fridays, TGIF, thank God Mm -hmm. it's Friday. Like most Mm -hmm. people want to get to the end of the week and, Mm -hmm. and call it quits. I, I came up with TGIM. Thank God it's Monday. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the, the same boat. <laughs> one of the few people I think that just loves to go to work and loves working with these companies. And, 
you know, every day, literally every day, we average between one and one and a half new clients a day. So you're talking, let's say there are 200 work days a year. Like we're bringing mm-hmm. on 200 new companies a year. Mm-hmm. And then you add them to the companies that we're already working with. I mean, it's just so exciting. Like one day we're working with the New York Yankees and the Los Angeles Lakers. And the next day we're working with a hospital. And the next day we're working with a massive retailer. And the next day we're working with a big real estate company. I mean, yeah. it's just so diverse, the people and the companies that we work with. And then we're working with some of the business, greatest business leaders in the world. So to be mm-hmm. able to spend time with these people, people to learn from with these people to, to grow with these people i mean it's a really fun job that we have josh i love that answer i'm a, a tgim i have not used that before but i am a, a monday advocate as well yeah i mean you're doing great things i love how it seems like when you're finding savings it's going back to directly helping the people and the teams that work for these companies amazing stuff you're doing at uh, bottom line concepts what's something that you wish i would have asked you that i haven't yet <laughs> um wow that's a tough one you really put me on the spot there i mean listen you know if you were to say to me what's my ultimate goal my ultimate dream with this business it, it has always been from day one to get the federal government of our country to hire us mm-hmm. you know you think about how inefficient government is and how especially today you know mm. with the incentive packages that have to come out as of this week i mean you know if the governor of X state or the president of the United States just said, you know what? No ego. Uh, I'm the governor of California. I'm the governor of Illinois. You know, you have carte blanche to help me save the entire state money. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's really where we can go with this thing, where we want to go with this thing. But again, it's always about relationships. Like I don't know the governor of Illinois. I don't know the governor of New York, but Mm -hmm. if they were listening to this and they called me, I know that I could save a billion dollars for a state government or billions of dollars for the federal government. I think that's would be my ultimate goal for this thing. Love that. Well, if anyone on the government side is listening, make sure to give Josh Fox a call, email, whatever that is. I should use this as an opportunity. What's your call to action to the folks out there? We've got a lot of manufacturing leaders listening to this. What would be your CTA before we wrap this up? Listen, I love having conversations. I love having email interactions. I love communicating on social media. You know, anybody out there that has a question or a thought or an idea, you know, please. I mean, my email is fox, just my last name, at bottomlinesavings.com. So it's F-O-X at bottomlinesavings.com. I'm on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, please reach out. I'm very reachable, very accessible, and very eager to just help people. Love it. Well, we definitely have some uncertain times ahead of us right now. It sounds like you guys are uniquely positioned to help folks as they're looking for ways to streamline, find some savings. It's been great having you on the show. I'll have links uh, in the show notes to find Josh and Bottom Line Concepts. In the meantime, Josh, thanks for being on today's show. No, and I mean, it's, it's we're in a really weird time and a sad time of what's happening. But, you know, we are so well positioned, as you said, and so eager to help um, when companies are really going to be hurting over the next couple of years. And I think we're, we're going to explode even further than we've done. So it's really like 
I'm working seven days a week and mm-hmm. working, you know, 15 hours a day, but I just don't mind it. I have a feeling some of us are going to be working those six, seven-day weeks a little bit more than we were coming up here. But on a positive note, I'm excited that this was the first dog-driven episode. For anyone that wasn't watching the video, I think, what, well, you're, it was uh, Brady that I had under me for about half the episode. So I feel like I managed the interview pretty well, even, uh, even with a large dog uh, hanging out. Yeah, listen, I appreciate you flying down here from San Francisco on a rainy day in in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, thanks for, for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. It's great having you on, Josh. And for those of you listening, we'll catch you again next time. Hey, thanks for listening. And a big thanks to Josh and the team over at Bottom Line Concepts for making this episode possible. It's always nice wrapping up an episode with some big dreams. Josh, wishing you the best of luck in achieving your goal of working with the governments of the U.S. In the meantime, I feel pretty confident that you are going to be pretty busy over the coming months and years. If you enjoyed today's episode or you're looking to learn more, make sure to head to bottomlinesavings.com to learn more about these guys or you can access all that information and show notes over at manufacturinghappyhour.com. If you've been enjoying the show, as always, please consider leaving a five-star rating in review over at iTunes. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It'll take you right there to Apple Podcasts. It's super easy to leave that five-star review. You just got to, well, you got to hit that five-star button to leave that rating. The review can be as short as one sentence, and that does not need to take any time at all either. Your feedback is very helpful in continuing to improve this show. Finally, one last shout out to our sponsor for this episode, Audible. If you would like to access your first free audiobook, do so by going to audibletrial.com slash happy hour pod. And with that, that is a wrap for this episode. We'll be doing all of our interviews remote for the foreseeable future, but you can still catch us here over at Manufacturing Happy Hour every week, if not more often than that, with all the bonus content that we've got coming out, including our upcoming cybersecurity mini-series. In the meantime, folks, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you back here real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.